Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you on a weekly journey through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so grab them and start a little group. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Deuteronomy, sermons from Moses that call the Israelites to love and obey God and to live on mission to the world around them. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're in chapters 29 and 30, which is part two of a section that runs from chapters 27 to 30. We're going to skim through this, hit some high points. Verse 1 talks about the terms of the covenant. That's a reference to Sinai and the law that was given there, but it's being reiterated again now on the plains of Moab. This is the start of the fourth sermon in chapters 29 and 30, but it does have links to the previous two chapters of the blessings and curses, as we'll see in a bit. Again, we see direct hints of how this is written in the form of a sovereign vassal treaty. The whole book has that, but it's woven throughout this section as if it's a sermon. We'll see the historical prologue in verses 1 through 9, the parties to the treaty in verses 10 through 15, basic stipulations in verse 18, verses 19 through 28 as curses for disobedience, the next chapter, verses 1 through 10, has restoration and blessing, and then invoking witnesses, finally, in chapter 30, verse 19. So, yes, it's a sermon, and it's a sermon based on the blessings and curses of the previous chapters, but it also has these immense parallels with the sovereign vassal treaties of Near Eastern culture. Verses 2 through 7 lay out an historical motivation for obedience, and then with obedience, verse 8 promises success. Again, this is a theme we've seen quite a bit throughout. It also brackets this section with chapters 5 through 11, where that theme was developed in great detail. On our history, Christopher Wright says, this historical grounding is as important for Old Testament faith as the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are for the Christian gospel. The biblical faith is not something speculatively invented in religious fervency, but in response to events in which God has acted. In both testaments, the gospel is not a good idea, it is good news. There is a small passage I want to read out of this chapter, and it's in chapter 29, verses 3 and 4. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders, but to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. This is reminiscent of the second half of Isaiah's commissioning in Isaiah 6. The first half of Isaiah 6 is quite famous. The second half doesn't get nearly the attention that it should, but that's exactly what God tells Isaiah. And then Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6-9 in Matthew 13, and Paul does the same thing in Romans 11 verse 8 as a component of his argument in Romans 9 through 11. Basically, you have seen, but you don't see it. And so seeing and understanding God's providential moves in history requires a God-given, God-graced perspective and insight. Notice that 
verse 4 says here, the Lord has not given you a mind. So God both provides the events and gives us the capacity to understand those events in light of the divine economy. And this is especially important when the moves of God are not miraculous, quote-unquote, when we don't see them as being obviously supernatural. We need a God-graced perspective to understand that history. Peter Craigie says here, when we read today the accounts of Hebrew history, the divine perspective has already been provided, and it is easy to forget that for the Israelite in ancient times, beset by anxieties of various kinds, that perspective was not automatically present, but required from him the vision of faith. Hence, there is a continual return to the theme in the address of Moses, in order that the audience might be brought to real understanding of the ways of God, real seeing of the acts of God, and real hearing of the words of God. All of this is true for us too. We can see, but not understand. And sometimes we don't even see. And it's always easier after the fact to have seen God's providences, but do we have the wisdom and the insight to see it as it's unfolding? That takes discernment and walking in the spirit. Back to Deuteronomy 29, verses 9 through 15 is on their covenant relationship with God. Verse 9, carefully follow so that you may prosper in everything you do. Verses 10 and 11 are interesting. It's a complete socially inclusive list of people by categories, reminiscent of Galatians 3.28. There's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no caste system in Jewish or Christian society. Here we have a list of the leaders and the lay people, men and women, adult and children, native and alien. Those who gather wood and draw water, those were menial work assignments often performed by the alien. So everyone is included. Verse 13 has a look back to the patriarchs. In other words, God's faithful promises. This also connects them to their legends, the patriarchs, right? And so it should be the same with us in Christian history. Many of us are in traditions where there's little or no emphasis on Christian history, but we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us and to connect us and our faith to their faith and the way they've walked faithfully with God is a useful thing. Craigie describes this as renewing the covenant, revitalizing the relationship, and entering into the legacy of the patriarchs. From there, verses 14 and 15 looks to the future, their legacy, and their responsibility to transmit the faith. The rest of the chapter, starting at verse 16, are warnings if they're disobedient. Verses 16 and 17 goes back in history, referencing their idolatry in Egypt and the wilderness. Verses 18 through 21 is interesting because it singles out individuals and tribes instead of the community. And we see that tension throughout Deuteronomy. One angle here is that this is countering the supposed anonymity of the individual and what economists call the free rider problem. If you're in a large group of people, does it really matter what the individual does? And the Bible's answer to this is yes. Here, individuals and tribes impact the community, as we've seen throughout the Pentateuch. And there's a tension here. Individuals are held accountable at some level. The community is held accountable at some level, but there's no perfect way to administer justice in these regards. Judgment on and blessings for the community are necessarily limited in terms of justice for individuals. For example, if God is slow or patient to judge through history, why would restoration be much quicker? How do you judge individuals and their impact on the community at the same time? And despite the frustrations that it gives individuals, there is simply no perfect way to administer justice on both of these at the same time. 
Verses 22 through 28 are prophesied disobedience, the devastation of the land, and then questions by Israelites and the foreigners in the future generation, basically what happened here. Verse 22, very stark language here, calamities and diseases afflicted on them by God. Verse 23, a burning waste of salt and sulfur, like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 24, so much so that the nations will ask why God did this. And the answer is provided in verses 25 through 28, their disobedience, and subsequently God's furious anger and great wrath. Verse 29 is an interesting conclusion that the secret things belong to the Lord. They had received God's revelation, which is a blessing and a responsibility to follow and obey. So this returns to and closes the loop with the verses I emphasized back in the early part of Deuteronomy 29, verses 3 and 4. You can't do things that you don't know, but when you do know, the revelation is to be owned and then to spread. This leads to obedience, discipleship, and so on. And as our real beliefs are in pocket, that leads to our actions. If we really believe and trust, we will obey. So that takes us to chapter 30, and the subject here is not particularly surprising if you're aware of the arc and the cycle of the Old Testament. Here there's the promise of material prosperity, renewed blessing, after a time of spiritual revival. The passage starts with the word when, it's not if, and there's a return from exile that's going to be described here. Verse 1, all these blessings and curses I have set before you have come upon you in exile, and you take them to heart. So these things have happened, and again, we're back to seeing and understanding. When they understand why and how and how to get back, then we have a path open for repentance, as is described in this chapter. And that's what we see in both verses 2 and 10, which are bookends for the first half of Deuteronomy 30. Basically, you'll return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, soul, in everything. On the idea of returning, it's reminiscent of the prodigal son. Matthew Henry picks up this idea when he says the prodigal son came to himself first and then to his father. But there's also sobering detail here in verse 2. Notice the words all, twice, and then everything. This is an impossible standard. We can't obey with all of our heart, all of our soul, in everything. James 2.10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. We cannot reach that standard. So it does point to Jesus and the new covenant and the Holy Spirit in what's coming in the future. Verse 3 starts the next section, Then the Lord your God will, and the Lord your God is mentioned 12 times in this opening section of Deuteronomy 30, in a nutshell, later in verse 3, have compassion on you. So assuming the obedience of verses 2 and 10, The net result is the compassion of God. Matthew Henry says, Those for whom God has mercy in store he may leave to fall, yet he will provide means for their recovery. Medicines are prepared beforehand for their cure. Verse 3 also mentions restore your fortunes. At least that's how it's translated in the NIV. It can also be translated bring you back from captivity, and both ideas are mentioned later in this passage. So, for example, later in verse 3, I will gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Verse 5, bring you back to the promised land. A beautiful line in verse 4, quite hopeful, even if you're banished to the most distant land under the heavens. But that second theme is also there. Verse 5, make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Verse 9, make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands, the fruit of your womb, livestock, and crops. 
verse 7 lays out a civil or military angle that all these curses would be put on their enemies. But the verse I want to highlight here is verse 6. Chapter 30, verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. First of all, when you look at the structure of this passage from verses 1 through 10, you see the book ending on either end of the passage, building to the middle, the center, which is this verse 6. This is the key that God will circumcise their hearts. It's a gracious act of God. You may remember back in chapter 10, verse 16, they were commanded to circumcise their own hearts. It was an exhortation to obedience. Here, it is a gracious act of God, a gift. Verse 6, so that you may love him with all your heart and soul. That's what we wrestled with back in verse 2. They're commanded to do something that's impossible. Verse 6 recognizes that and says, I will give you something different. I will circumcise your heart so that this can be done. Verse 6 says, so that you can live. Verse 8, you will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands. So again, this foresees the new covenant and the role of the Holy Spirit. The heart must be circumcised, but it is done so only by God's grace. Great passages on this in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 in the Old Testament. And of course, it's a prominent theme in the New Testament as well. For example, Romans 2.29 Colossians 2, 11 and 12. When you read verses 1 through 10, it is wide ranging. We have restoration and renewal. We have physical and spiritual blessings. We have the same standards. God is not relaxing the standards. He keeps the standards the same and empowers them to be able to meet those standards. Last thought here is to link chapters 29 to what we've seen so far in chapter 30 the idea that cheap grace makes short-run disobedience easier and more likely. As an economist, I'm fascinated by the incentive problem here. When God gives, gives, and gives, and God loves us, so on and so forth, it makes it easier, actually, and ironically, to trample that grace. Such grace should be more difficult to abuse, but human nature is such that we often abuse it instead. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org. And with free paper editions in store at 200 locations, please spread the word about Pure Radio, the station, the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered Deuteronomy 29 and the first 10 verses of Deuteronomy 30. In this segment, we'll cover the rest of chapter 30. And we'll start with the encouragement of verses 11 through 14. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. So verse 11, all this is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Verse 12, it's not in heaven. Verse 13, it's not beyond the sea. In other words, it's not inaccessible. It's not impractical or unrealistic. It's not impossible. So again, the passage plays with this theme. Verse 2 indicated it was impossible. Verse 6 indicated it was possible. And this continues along those lines. This also reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10.13 and the hope there that there are no temptations which are beyond that which we can bear through God. So verses 11 through 13 are the negatives. It's not this, this, and this. Verse 14 is the positive. Very encouraging. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth, your heart, so that you may obey it. 
This is a key quote in Paul's development of an application of this principle to Christ in Romans 10, verses 5 through 13. It's also a nice connection back to Deuteronomy 4, 7, where Moses wrote that God was near. Now we have that the word is near. Wright picks up on this and says in chapter 4, the nearness of God is the basis of Israel's distinctiveness among the nations. In chapter 30, the nearness of God's word is the basis of their moral response to God, which enables their distinctiveness to be visible. So along with chapter 30, verse 6 on God will circumcise your heart, this is very new covenant-ish. And there's some here, the ability to follow God through what's been provided, but it's all external, monuments, displays of God's power, whatever is happening in this moment. God is beside them, not inside them. And that will not happen until the new covenant and the Holy Spirit coming to live inside the believer, not just to instruct, not just to impress from the outside, but to live from the inside. So that takes us to the climax of Deuteronomy 30 and this sermon by Moses and arguably maybe the climax of the entire book. So that's verses 15 through 20 of chapter 30. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is an exhortation to a way of life. It's not a mere assent to a set of beliefs. And the same choice is before believers of all times. In essence, this is a matter of life and death. That's how it's being sold here. It's also in the second person singular. So this is intensely personal, although it does have obvious implications for community. Wright says here, the sermon closes with evangelistic fervor, and it also has echoes in both the teachings of Jesus and Paul. Verse 15, I set before you life and prosperity, death and destruction. Verse 19, the framing continues here on either side of the passage. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Jeremiah 21.8 describes the way of life and death. And that's the choice they get to make. Verse 16 has obedience with blessings. Verses 17 and 18, disobedience with curses. And the punchline is in verse 19, choose life so that, first of all, later in verse 19, you and your children may live. Verse 20, you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. And then later in verse 20, God will give you many years in the land. Matthew Henry says here, those shall have life that choose it. And those that come short of life must thank themselves. But maybe more powerful than all of that is in the middle of verse 20, for the Lord is your life. We'll see very similar language in just a few chapters, chapter 32, verses 46 and 47. See similar language in Proverbs 3, verses 21 and 22. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. 
what is that life? Well, back to verses 19 and 20, it's loving, listening to, and thus obeying, and loyalty to God. Verse 15 says, see, I give you this life. And that parallels what we saw much earlier in Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 8. See, I give you this land. It's also interesting that land is a metaphor for life. And you see this especially in the book of Joshua as they take the promised land. That's a picture for us of the Christian life well lived. The fight and the fruit of a spirit-dependent, grace-filled life of sanctification and grace living by God, with God, for God. So a few closing comments about blessings and obedience, curses and disobedience, the formula, so to speak, of the Old Covenant. I like what C.S. Lewis says about God and his broad purpose for Israel. He writes, God selected one particular people and spent several centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God he was, that there was only one of him and that he cared about right conduct. Those people were the Jews, and the Old Testament gives an account of the hammering process. Remember that God is starting from square one with Israel, not just in the sense of limited revelation to this point, mostly working with individuals. Now he's working with a nation and a people who has come out of slavery and 40 years in the wilderness. And it reminds me of dealing with five-year-olds, basically. And that's what they are spiritually. What, how do you teach a five-year-old? Well, there's a hammering process, so to speak. And there's certain core doctrines that have to be believed within the family. And so that process reminds me very much of what a parent goes through. You have this stark picture of what discipline, obedience, love, growth looks like. But in reality, the parenting is a little more flexible than all that yet you still have those standards. Well, that flexibility leads to tension later in the prophets, right? They're trying to figure out, God, why are you doing this? Why are you blessing the disobedient? Why are you seeming to curse those who want to follow you? One answer is that justice can never be perfect between individuals and community, as I talked earlier. Another part of it is there can't be an immediate, complete cause and effect that would eliminate God's sovereignty. We would be controlling God through our behavior if this formula were that tight. If I obey, he must bless me. If I disobey, he must curse me. Then I'm God at that point. So this both preserves and adds to our free will while preserving God's sovereignty. Now, it does weaken the incentives, right? If it's really tight between blessings and obedience, curses and disobedience, then we'll behave ourselves better, but not for the right reasons. We're called to walk in faith, and so this relationship can never be airtight. There's also the problem that it's difficult for us to determine whether any given thing is a blessing or a curse. We've seen this throughout Deuteronomy. God blesses, or so we would describe it, but then it ends up being a curse, I'm not going to read it here, but there's a wonderful Max Lucado story you can find on the internet about an old man with horses, and it points to our lack of perspective on these matters. The punchline to me here is whatever our circumstances are, wherever they come from, it doesn't really matter. The right response, the important thing, is what are we going to do with those circumstances? Again, this is a matter of character. God's much more concerned about our character than our circumstances. A really nice song on this is by John Waller called The Blessing. And some of its lyrics are, let it be said of us while we walked among the living. Let it be said of us by the ones we leave behind. Let it be said of us that we live to be a blessing for life. 
And then the chorus, this day you set life, you set death right before us. This day, every blessing and curse is a choice now, and we will choose to be a blessing for life. That was the choice for Israel. It is the choice for us today. How will you choose? As for me and my household, we will choose life. We will choose the Lord. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. Right now, we're in Deuteronomy 31, the historical wrap-up as we get into the last section of Deuteronomy. It frames up nicely with chapters 1 through 3. Wright notes that the two sections can be read back-to-back, although the former is about the past and the latter is about the future. But back to Jewish literature, it's common to use this book-ending technique, and so these last four chapters work really nicely with the first three chapters of the book. We're going to skim the first 13 verses. This is the public uh, words of Moses to the people. Verses 1 through 6 is directly to the people. It includes a reference to Joshua as their new leader in verse 3. Verses 4 and 5, God will deliver them. And the exhortation in verse 6 to be strong and courageous. It's repeated to Joshua in verses 7 and 8. And it's, of course, reminiscent of the most famous version of this in Joshua 1, 6 through 9, as the book opens that takes them into the promised land. From there, we see some details that parallel what you find in a treaty between a sovereign and the vassal, the dynastic succession of Joshua in verses 7 and 8, and then the promise to have a future public reading of the covenant every seven years. That's in verses 9 through 13. There are other aspects of this treaty comparison much later in the chapter, verse 23, the exhortation to Joshua through God's promised presence, verses 24 through 26, the safekeeping of the covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, and then verse 28, the command to assemble the people as is being done early in the chapter we're reading. After verses 1 through 13's public words, then we move to the rest of the chapter, which is a private moment with God, Moses, and Joshua. In this section, we're only going to read verses 16 through 18. And the Lord said to Moses, you're going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come on them. And in that day, they will ask, have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness and turning to other gods. So God speaks to Moses, verse 16, as a prophecy of Israel's desolate future. These people will soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods. They will forsake me and break the covenant. That leads in verses 17 and 18 to God's anger. He will forsake, hide my face twice. They will be destroyed by others and many disasters and calamities. A few things to say here. First of all, how sad and frustrating for Moses to hear. But on the other hand, he knows. Peter Craigie says this is divine insight into the basic character of the people and their constant tendency to unfaithfulness. Moses surely has the same insight. He probably hopes against hope that it will be different, but he also knows the tendencies and the flaws of those he's leading. Second point to make here is God's grace in spite of this future outcome. God could have just sacked the whole thing. He knows it's not going to end well, and yet he continues with it in his grace and his patience. Third, because this is going to fail, this looks forward to and sets the table for the new covenant and the lineage of Jesus. 
this isn't going to work. The old covenant necessarily leads to the new covenant. And finally, there are still individuals with great faith. This is not a condemnation of every individual that will follow, or even in the times that God is referring to here, there will still be the faithful remnant. And so the matter of choice that we talked about in chapter 30 is still in play here. Free will and freedom are required for virtue, and choosing properly to obey God, to follow a good and great God, is the best way to go, even though it will rarely be chosen at times in Israel's history. In verses 27 and 29, we have a translation or paraphrase of this conversation by Moses to the Levites, and then he adds in surely his own experiences with the people. He says there, I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If this much while I'm still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? You are sure to become utterly corrupt. And so Moses has a high view of his own leadership, I think properly the case, but he also recognizes that when he's gone and without God showing up every day to bang on their door and show himself to them, then they're going to stray. And that's what's going to happen later in their history. The result is disaster and provoking God to anger. Matthew Henry says here, many a sad thought, no doubt, an occasion to this good man to foresee the apostasy and ruin of a people he had taken so much pains with, but this was his comfort that he had done his duty. And I think that's a great comfort to us as well. I remember reading the first time that Paul understood success as faithfulness to the task that God had given him. It's not up to us to dictate the response of others. We're not responsible for that. Like the watchmen of the Old Testament, we're responsible to call out when we see danger. But if the people don't respond, that's not on us. I think it's also interesting to consider the timing of this, that God reveals this to Moses near the end of his life. I wonder if it's an example of God typically only revealing a few things to us at a time because that's all we can handle. And for Moses, if he had known this 40 years ago or five or 10 years ago, would he have been able to persevere? It would have tempted him to be disobedient, to not be as effective as a leader. And here God withholds it until the end that this is the way things are gonna turn out. God's word to us is a lamp into our feet. It's not a spotlight way down the path. Back to verses 19 through 22 of chapter 31, this introduces the song that will be the dominant thing in chapter 32. So let's go ahead and read that, starting in verse 19. Now write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it, so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their ancestors, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and calamities come on them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land I promised them on oath. And then verse 23 tells us that Moses wrote down the song and taught it to the Israelites. So the song is God's, it's written by Moses, and it's taught to Israel. Again, we'll see this in chapter 32. Verse 21 here says it will not be forgotten by their descendants. They're going to forget a lot of stuff, but they're not going to forget this. I think it also underlines the power of song, how many lyrics we can't get out of our heads from the old days. Or in a positive light, how often song is used to teach us the scriptures and the character of God. Verse 19 here gives us the purpose. It's a witness. Verse 21, to testify against them. So that's not good news. Verse 20 is about their disobedience when they eat their fill and thrive. 
Verse 21, subsequently, many disasters and difficulties. These are all themes that we've talked about before, that despite the grace, maybe because of the grace, they end up stumbling and it results in disasters and difficulties. Matthew Henry says, if this song did not prevent their apostasy, yet it might help to bring them to repentance. Verse 21, God says, I know what they're disposed to do. First Chronicles 28, 9 says, the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. This is a key idea for us and helps us develop empathy in dealing with non-Christians and even Christians. John 2, verses 24 and 25, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. And so we deal with limited people. We are limited people. And so we should practice empathy as we can. Chapter 31, verse 30, that last verse provides a prose introduction to the Song of Moses, which dominates chapter 32. Notice in verse 30, it says that it's recited, but we were also told back in verse 19 that it's to be sung. It's interesting to me that in the book of Revelation, that worship is more often spoken than sung. So singing is fine, but speaking is great too. A few comments here before we get into the particulars. First, the song's lyrics, in a nutshell, are about relationship, disobedience, punishment, and restoration. In other words, the gospel. In other words, everything about the Bible, and especially here in the book of Deuteronomy. The Bible and our theology has to have healthy doses of creation, fall, grace, and redemption. Second point is this is part of the current renewal of the covenant, and when sung later, it would be part of the continuing witness and refreshing of that covenant. So the heavens and the earth are a witness. We're told that three times in Deuteronomy. Here we have this song as a witness against them or for them if they're obeying. Third observation is the song has some flavor of prophecy and wisdom literature, so it's not a mere song of praise. And finally, as poetry, there are a number of uncommon words here, and thus it is challenging to translate it definitively. So if you run into particular things that trouble you or that you question, either keep moving or do some more digging. All right, let's read verses 1 through 6, the opening of the song. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, you earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. O oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Some great stuff here. Let's start with verse 2. Let my teaching fall like rain. Well, first of all, it's interesting that a treaty and a poem would be used for teaching. Second, what kind of rain are we talking about here? I mean, rain can be flooding or can be refreshing. And I guess depending on the moment, you might want a flood or refreshment from the rain of this teaching. Verse 3 has praise, and that brackets with verse 43 at the end of the song to bracket the entire song in praise to God and worship. Verse 4, he's the perfect God. God is the rock. His works are perfect. The rock is used six times in Deuteronomy 32, including the climax of its use in verse 31. Their rock is not like our rock. And so God is steady and unchanging. This is in great contrast to the fickle nature of the people. 
He is perfect where Israel is less than perfect. Matthew Henry says the Israel of God, whose character was in all respects the reverse of that of the God of Israel. And so the imperfect people are mentioned in verse 5. They acted corruptly. They are a warped and crooked generation. This is quoted by Paul in Philippians 2.15, if that phrase rings a bell. And finally, the rhetorical question that begs to be asked, verse 6, is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Micah 6, verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Or Jesus in John 10, 32, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We see grace, we see wonderful things, and yet we repay God with ingratitude, disobedience. It doesn't make any sense. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we did Deuteronomy 31 and the first six verses of chapter 32, which is the Song of Moses. In this segment, we're going to cover the rest of chapter 32 and chapter 33. I talked in detail about the first six verses of the song, but we'll skim the rest of it and hit some high points. Verses 7 and 8 is an interesting piece of predestination, the early Genesis 10 designation of Canaan as the promised land. Verses 9 through 14 is on the goodness of God, his tender loving care in forming Israel as a people, an heir coming of age, and then inheriting the land. Some really nice phrases here. Verse 10, he found Jacob in a desert, a barren and howling waste. Continuing in verse 10, he shielded and cared for him, guarded him as the apple of his eye. And then verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spread its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. Just beautiful language here. Verses 15 through 18 is on Israel's disobedience and the dangers of prosperity. Again, a frequent theme in Deuteronomy. The most interesting phrase here, I think, is in verse 18, that they would forget God who had fathered them and given them birth. God has no gender, but in verse 18, he's pictured as both a father and a mother. On the mother part of this, Kathleen Norris observes that the Hebrew verb here is applied exclusively to a woman in labor. The image is of a living God struggling, laboring, like a panting, sweating woman to bring us into being. Wow. Verses 19 through 25 is the result of their disobedience that God would disdain and punish them, discipline them. Matthew Henry says they had turned their back on God, and now God would turn his back on them. Interesting phrases here, verse 20, that he would hide his face. That's a picture of withdrawing blessings, and this precedes the curses that would later be sent. For now we have mercy and patience as God withdraws blessings, but later even that is withheld as the punishments and disciplines are brought forth. And then verse 21, they made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. This is quoted by Paul in Romans 10, 19. In verses 26 through 33, an old dilemma is revisited. God wants to discipline them, but punishing Israel harms God's reputation. We've seen this argument from Moses in Deuteronomy 9, verses 26 and 28, and then extended versions of it in Exodus 32 with the golden calf incident and Numbers 14 when Israel decides not to go into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. But then things turn around at the end. Verses 34 to 43 is the future destruction of Israel's enemies and the mercy, compassion of God. 
1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So Israel is disobeyed, and then God turns to the nations. Some colorful language here, verse 35, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. Paul quotes this in Romans 12.19. Verse 39, I myself am he, There is no God besides me. So interesting poetic language there. Later in verse 39, no one can deliver them out of my hand, which alludes to eternal security. That's a much longer discussion, and I would not proof text that off any one verse, but it is reminiscent of what Jesus says in John 10, 28. And then finally, verse 43 is quoted by Paul in Romans 15, 10 about the Gentiles. And so there's an element of prophecy and a messianic reference here. Verses 44 through 47 is a wrap-up. Verse 46 has some interesting phrases here. They need to take to heart all the words so that the command to their children to obey carefully. So the adults take care of their business and they pass it on to their kids. And then the powerful language we saw in chapter 30, verse in ver, here in verse 47, that we saw in chapter 30, here in verse 47, they are not just idle words, they are your life. Then with the song over, the, the chapter shifts gears. Verse 49, Moses climbs Mount Nebo across from Jericho to see Canaan. Verse 50, he will climb, die, and be gathered to his people as Aaron was. Verse 51 is interesting because it said both of them broke faith in Numbers 20, whereas Numbers 20 indicates it's Moses alone. Verse 52, therefore they're not getting in, but they do get to see the promised land from afar. So now we turn to chapter 33, which is blessings to the tribes from Moses as he comes to the end of his life. Verse 1 is interesting, the title he's given, Moses the Man of God. So interesting timing for the first use of that title for Moses. I'm not going to read the chapter, but hit some high points again, make some general comments. The first is that Moses had preached three sermons, provided a song, and here he dismisses them with a poetic, prophetic blessing. And again, the nature of this, especially the poetry part, means that it is difficult to translate in places. Again, don't let that bother you or dig deeper if you want. On the idea that Moses is a prophet, Matthew Henry says he not only expresses his good wishes to this people, but by the spirit of prophecy foretells things to come concerning them. And it is poetic. It does have blessings. But in the context, you'll notice that a lot of it has a military flavor at times, encouraging and anticipating the victories they're about to have in the promised land. The chapter reads as a father blessing his children, and therefore Moses really stands in here as a patriarch. He's not the literal father of Israel, but spiritually, of course, he is. Biblically, this follows tightly with Genesis 49 and the blessings by Jacob for his sons and the tribes of Israel. And so this is as a dying father to his family. We also see Jesus doing the same sort of thing. In Luke 24, verses 50 and 51, it says, When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. So that's how Luke paints the grand finale of Jesus on earth, blessing the people as a father with his children.
So some observations about the blessings here. First, they're all positive, whereas three of them are negative in Genesis 49 when Jacob does it. There are some small, semi-interesting things about the order of the blessings. Leah and Rachel's children are listed before their maidservants. Reuben remains first despite his troubles and failure in leadership and taking his father's concubine and all the troubles that we see in Genesis We see Judah listed before Levi, that's the tribe of David and Christ. It's interesting that the kingdom would precede the priesthood, but as we'll see in a minute, Judah really doesn't get a lot of text here. Most of that goes to Levi, but he is before Levi in order here. And it's odd and interesting that Benjamin is listed before Joseph. But again, as with Jacob's blessing, it's Joseph that gets the most print. Now, the details on length are a bit more interesting. The longest chunks here are for Levi, which is not surprising, giving the priests and the key roles in the sanctuary at the altar, and as is listed in verse 10, their role as teachers. Now, why does Levi have such a prominent role? Well, that's a long and detailed story that starts back in Genesis 34 with a huge stumble along with his brother Simeon. I cover that in episode 55. But then he recovers as a tribe in Exodus 32, the golden calf incident, and Numbers 25 with Phineas. Those are covered in episodes 91 and 113 of the word diet. So it's obvious in Leviticus and here in Deuteronomy why the priests would receive so much text. turns out Joseph gets a long listing here as well, long description, long blessing. Double blessing for the first favored child of Rachel. So that's usually divided up into the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, both of which were prominent tribes. The language here, if you read it, is quite lyrical. It's also interesting that there's not much on Judah. So he was listed early, but doesn't get much text here. And maybe that's because it's not so much about political leadership and the Messianic references as it is about the nation of Israel and how it's going to run the economic prominence of Joseph and the priestly prominence of Levi are the things that get the most attention here. Simeon is omitted, again, back to that Genesis 34 reference, and nothing redeeming sense in his tribe, and that tribe continues to fade away and is eventually absorbed into Judah. Verse 29 wraps up the chapter. Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you and you will tread on their heights. So they are meant to be a blessing to people in terms of Genesis 12, but there is the military matter of the promised land as well. So you see both of them in the blessings and in the psalm or song of Moses in the previous chapter as well. As we look big picture to close this out, I like what Donald Williams says in Touchstone magazine. He's talking about John 3.16 and how Jesus is talking to Nicodemus that God so loved the world. And Williams notes that Nicodemus is expecting God to love not the world, but Israel. But when we make that mistake, when Nicodemus makes that mistake, he's failing to remember the Abrahamic covenant that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so while Moses is blessing Israel, really the intended target is that the world would be blessed through Israel. And as Moses blesses Israel, God blesses us today. And the charge is still the same for us to be a blessing to God and to others in our everyday life. 
Lord, we pray that we would be up to that challenge. We thank you for what Deuteronomy has offered us today through the song of Moses and the blessings of Moses. We pray that we would be challenged to worship you for who you are, what you've done, not just in history, but in our own lives. We pray for power as individuals. We pray for an effective community. And we pray that we would be a blessing to you and to others in our daily life, whether through difficulties or the blessings that we gain through your grace. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for not just the old covenant, but the new covenant. And we lift up our todays and everything we have to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.